From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the JW Marriott Desert Ridge in Phoenix, Arizona, site of GreenBiz 18. On this week's edition, what you missed in Phoenix, including perspectives from the sustainability community, Project Gigaton's weighty promise, and what we talk about when we talk about climate resilience. We are having our day in the sun this week on 350. It's February 9th, 2018. Welcome to this special episode of Green Biz 350 from our signature annual event. Joining me is Editorial Director Heather Clancy, live and in person. Hey, Heather. Hello, Joel. It's awesome to see you in person. How are you feeling? I mean, we've just had this uh, intense, really, four days of uh, conference. Um, I'm too happy to be tired. <laughs> <laughs> you tired to be happy? <laughs> never. never. <laughs> um, I I am feeling great. It, this it's an awesome venue, and there is so many people here. I, I I keep finding people networking in every little space of the hotel, and and it's always rewarding as a, a member of the GreenBiz team to see the the connections and the dialogues and the the intense conversations that are happening in corners, and and knowing that. There are things getting done here. It's not just talking that there's a lot of good that we're going to hear about six to nine months from now that maybe started here. Hmm, that sounds a little bit weird, but uh, <laughs> um, let's just go with that. No, and, and to appreciate the appreciation that we get from the, the community, um, they really do appreciate us bringing them together. I'll, just a couple things about this for people to know. I mean, first of all, this is the first year that we topped a thousand people, which is, you know, it's not about quantity, but it is impressive. But we also cut back on the main stage time, the big plenary sessions where everybody's in a big dark room um, watching the stage because the audience wanted more time together. They wanted more time to network, to, to have real conversations, to roll up their sleeves. And and we did that. And, and the response has been extremely, extremely favorable. So, uh, and I've said this, I think I say this every event, but my personal joy is watching our team execute, the, the great GreenBiz team coming together in the way they do uh, and just making it happen and not flinching when things don't go perfectly and and being happy and joyous and gracious and going out dancing. In this case, and the, the silent disco we had on Wednesday night, that was pretty awesome. Did you do that? I did not do that because I was feeding the beast on, on the website. I was writing, but um, yeah, seeing people out on the lawn dancing with no music, uh, with just these headphones on, and I, you could see who was dancing to the same tunes just by the the colors that were playing. But it just such a novel concept, and I I, I love the spirit of fun, I, and I think that is one of the other things that that is very unique about this community, and um, they just try crazy new things, and everyone goes along and, and smiles and has fun. Well, we'll make sure you get to do, do a little dancing next year. I know, uh, God bless you for just being up there feeding the editorial beast. Uh, so we can keep cranking out uh, the, the stories every day that we do on Green Biz while we're in the middle of this intense 24-hour event. So 
This week, we're going to play some snippets from the uh, main stage. Uh, we're also going to have some interviews that we did on the sidelines uh, with, with a number of different people. And let's get into it. Hi, I'm Klaus Stieg Peterson. Uh, I am head of sustainability and public affairs for Novozymes. Uh, Novozymes is the world's largest industrial uh, biotech company, uh, enabling industries all over the world to use enzymes and microbes uh, to replace chemistry, water consumption, energy consumption. And how do I feel about sustainability, uh, our journey uh, this year compared to last year? So I think uh, I'm super excited because uh, what I see is a, a big wave rising and it's just keep getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and that wave started actually back in Rio in 2012 with the start of the process of forming uh, the new Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, Novozymes has been close to that wave ever since. We were part of the process of developing the goals. In 2014, we, we uh, used the goals as inspiration, if, if reformulating our company purpose, strategy and long-term targets. In, in 2016, we started to map our potential contributions to the global goals. And uh, last year, we started a process of, of attracting, using the global goal alignment and, and potential benefits to attract new partners for business uh, development acceleration. Very exciting processes. And it looks really promising. And we see so much interest in the market. We see so much interest among our customers. Uh, we see increasingly that investors start caring about these things. So that's why I'm saying I'm super excited uh, about uh, all this movement, all this energy, all this uh, interest there is in being part of this journey. And uh, this year, this year we're going to focus on uh, identifying potential uh, new business areas where we believe that enzymes and microbes should play a role because the world needs it, people need it, and we can solve environmental and social problems with a business model. So that makes me super excited. So that was the first in a series of perspectives from the sustainability community that were collected by our editorial team. By the way, shout out to Anya Hallmeiser, R.P. Siegel, who was here helping us report, Cassandra Sweet, our senior writer, and of course, Elsa Wenzel, our managing editor, who uh, get it, got it all together and edited and making sense. So thank you, guys. We asked the sustainability directors to just comment on the they're, how they were feeling, right? So last year at, at GreenBiz 17, the, the atmosphere was a little anxious and worried and, and um, people were wondering what the, the new uh, government regime um, would bring as far as, as um, support for sustainability programs. And so we asked people to reflect on how they were feeling about their company's sustainability journey this year versus one year ago. And so optimism actually i love it there was a lot of optimism is a lot of optimism yeah and and i agree and it is a very different field because our last event was three weeks after the inauguration um and and i opened the the, the show last year saying that you know donald trump is sustainability stress test you know this black swan low probability high impact event for which we did not have a game plan and and this year it's feeling like you know, we can do this, we've got this. And in spite of uh, 
uh, enormous headwinds that we faced in, around the Paris Climate Agreement, around you know, the rollback of environmental regulations in the United States, that we, there's really nothing to see here in terms of, of changes of strategy. And in fact, I, I gave the audience kudos uh, for not standing down, but standing up. They're not doubling over, but doubling down. And, and I, I think that really did capture a lot of people's feelings that, as you said, is just a, a big shift from one year ago. So one of the themes that just pervasive throughout the conference is partnerships and collaboration. I mean, and that's not new. Uh, there have been partnerships and collaborations uh, going on in sustainable business forever. But there's a new uh, spirit and I think a, a understanding there's a new need for, for companies that you know, to ramp this up, that there are problems that we can only solve together, that none of us can solve alone. And so I think we're seeing more and more bigger and bolder uh, uh, partnerships and and collaborations. And that just seemed to show up a lot in the conversations. Yeah, one that we, we heard about on the main stage was a uh, partnership that's building and, and, and between International Paper and Procter & Gamble. And what I appreciated about the work that these, these companies are doing is they both realized that they, they had an interest in looking farther down their supply chains into the communities that help support the products that they're making. You know, in the case of international paper, the pulp and the, the paper products and so forth that go into the packaging and also the products at, at a company like Procter & Gamble. And, but instead of each developing some kind of small farmer or, you know, I'm, we're going to go after these communities on their own, right, separately, the two of them decided to, hey, you know, we both want to do this. How can we effectively, more effectively work together to, to get this done? And um, so here's some perspective from Tom Cleaves. He's the vice president of global citizenship for international paper. So our vision is to have a seamless partnership based on trust and transparency that allows P&G and IP to exceed shareholder expectations while improving the sustainability of both of our companies and the sustainability of our planet. So seamless relationship built on trust and transparency that enables us to meet shareholder expectations but also improve the sustainability of our two companies and our planet. Our entire company depends on the sustainability of forests. We're the world's largest producer of fiber-based packaging pulp and paper products. And P&G has a commitment to supply, to purchase 100% of their raw materials from responsibly managed forests. So strong overlap between our, our core values as companies and what both of us need from this relationship. So in 2016, P&G, IP, 3M, who may be in the room with us today, um, and the American Forest Foundation formed the Carolinas Working Forest Conservation collaborative. It's a long title that was developed by committee and run by legal. We wanted to call it a partnership. It wound up being the Carolinas Working Forest Conservation Collaborative. So in the U.S., most of the land is owned by individuals. Individuals own more land than corporations, and they own more land than government. And in the southeastern United States, most of the forest land is owned by individuals. It's the forest land that we get our fiber off of. In a survey that we did, 87% of them indicated it's they, one of the top reasons they own the forest is for the wildlife, yet they also admit they lack the functional technical expertise 
to make sure they're managing their land for uh, healthy forest ecosystems, hence the collaborative that we've got. So it's all about engaging individual landowners to understand how to enhance, protect, and restore bottomland hardwoods and the at-risk species that depend on those hardwoods. The, it's not a feel-good project. It's very metric-based. We have aggressive goals to um, work with 30,000 forest landowners that collectively own two and a half million acres. We've got a goal to get 450 of those landowners to connect with us, give them the technical assistance so that they can enhance and expand bottomland hardwood forests and protect at-risk species. We also set a goal of getting 120 of them to certify their land to a credible third-party forest system. So that's our forest collaboration. Yeah, this is just a pervasive spirit. Uh, I uh, hosted a, a private lunch uh, with uh, one of the large chemical companies and a lot of the world's largest brands in, uh, of consumer packaged goods, uh, beverages, and things. You can probably guess some of the names. And looking at the problem of, of package waste, particularly plastic waste, um, and how we create a new supply chain, how we close the loop, uh, create the next generation of plastics from old plastics, and truly do build a circular economy. I mean, I have to say that the fact that these major, major companies and brands were, were coming together to talk about uh, creating a circular economy just <laughs> sort of kind of blows my mind just in terms of how far that concept has come in a relatively short amount of time. Um, this is real. I mean, this is not uh, nice to do. This is, they realize that their, their growth ambitions uh, require this, their right to operate uh, in places like Asia that are inundated with plastic waste uh, is threatened, um, and their ability to enter markets like in Africa and other places where they see the next growth uh, opportunities is, is jeopardized. And so this is uh, just fascinating, fascinating conversations by, again, some of the world's largest companies on uh, and how they come together. Because this is an area where, you know, you've got the recyclers and you've got the consumers and you've got the, the, the polymer companies and the packaging companies and the brands and, and others. And in the past, they've each pointed in the, in, at each other. Mm -hmm. um, and now they realize, no, we need a systems view. So one of the conversations that really struck me was the one you moderated, um, Joel, between Bill McDonough, wow, <laughs> what a brain, and this uh, woman from the Netherlands? Where is she from, Netherlands? She's from the Netherlands. Yeah, so her name, Katrine Lai from Fashion for Good. And I think this thing that struck me um, was the, the true, the genuine interest among some of the biggest fashion companies in the world, like fashion, like people buy clothing, um, and they go through clothing at ridiculous rates, and and the industry knows it's to blame for for de for designing that into their 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 habits, right? But now the industry is trying to look at the materials that are in that fast fashion and really rethink, you know, what what happens to a garment? Should a garment be designed so that it can be? reused and reused and maybe resold and rented and, and last years and years and years and years, which actually tends to be my strategy. I have a lot of things in my closet that are decades old, scarily enough, but coolly enough. Um, or do you look at new materials that just really um, allow what, what's going to ha ha you know, it's going to wind in the waste, wind up in the landfill. Do you put money between, behind innovations that help those materials degrade, compost, whatever it happens to be, you know, 
what is the, I don't know what the right solution is. There's probably a thousand right solutions. I love the fact that they're thinking of both approaches. It's, there's so much to, to learn and do here. For me, one of the, 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 the missing links, I will say, I'll just, you know, to go on my little, I, I tend to be an optimistic person, as you know, but I'll go on my little negative side and say, I worry about the consumers, right? That consumers are wired to, to dispose, they're in consume and dispose and consume. So that is a huge uh, area that has to be addressed. But, you know, as far as, as intention, I, I love I love that collaboration. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, just a great example, and it's a great example of how you need to bring in the entire uh, industry and value chain. Um, and you should check out Fashion for Good, fashionforgood.com. Um, they have a building in Amsterdam that's uh, went uh, live, I think, last March, 2017, and. Um, helping companies solve a lot of these challenges, but making the information open source right. um, and uh, using a, a five principles for good. Uh, you know, it was called Fashion for Good and they have five kinds of good and I'm, I'm afraid I don't remember exactly what they are, but uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of the range of you know, uh, people, planet, and profits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I think what, what's interesting is, is uh, how, you, how, you, how this actualizes, how this actually starts to happen. So when, in the breakout that followed that panel that you saw, uh, I had, in addition to uh, Katrine Lai and, and Bill McDonough, we had Jeff Hogue from CNA and uh, Del Hudson from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Of course, they're the, uh, basically the ones who you know, taught us how to spell circular economy. Um, and, and CNA, I wrote this piece uh, a number of months ago about how they created the first cradle-to-cradle t-shirt and how they had to reinvent thread because thread is either you know, nylon or polyester, which means mm -hmm. you can't you know, put something in compost or, or, or dematerialize it um, as easily and new kinds of inks. And just the innovation that went into that, that's all now open source. And a lot of the cradle-to-cradle certification that, that Bill McDonough's organization catalyzed is you know the data that's now open source. So I love that they're giving this away and then letting letting companies uh, create and compete based on that common uh, pool of information. Here's a little snippet from that main stage conversation I had with Bill and Katrine. If if you want to look at different dye technologies, wouldn't it be great since each company might make a bet, but it might not be the right bet? necessarily for the whole industry, or they have to keep it secret because they're doing something proprietary. We're basically saying, let's all take a look at all the different dyeing techniques that are coming. Let's invest in them. Let's see what's out there. And then the companies can come in and say, wow, look at that. This one seems to be working really well. And it can start to scale because it's something worthy of the, of the industry. That's, that's an important part of this, this open sourcing of what's going on. At the other end of it, we didn't have anything that went down to the molecule. So one of the other great things about Fashion for Good that's particularly exciting for me is that as we do the cradle-to-cradle -cradle assessments with all the assessors and the scientists going into every dye down to the molecule, it's encouraging the dye companies like Huntsman, like Dye Star, and so on. They're getting cradle-to-cradle -cradle certified now. You can go into Fashion for Good and all the process and the technique and the companies making these healthy, safe materials are all open and public to you. So you could say, I'm gonna make something that's clean and safe and you can go quickly and get to the details all the way to the molecule. We don't have that anywhere else. Sophie Beckham, Senior Manager of Natural Capital Stewardship at International Paper. 
my sustainability journey now compared to a year ago. I think that a year ago, we were thinking very much about who we want to be in 2020 and how we're going to deliver on independent but concrete sustainability targets. I feel like in the last year, we have started to embark upon more of a systems thinking model where we're thinking beyond 2020, although those those targets are still very important, and looking to 2030 to say, who do we want to be then? How do we connect that to our global citizenship framework? And how do we make it meaningful for all of our stakeholders, in particular, the people who work for our company? One of the topics we've been talking about here this week in Phoenix is climate risk and climate resilience. And I'm talking this week uh, with uh, Chris Smy, the Managing Director, Global Environmental Practice Leader, and Lucy Nottingham, the Director of the Global Risk Center at the Marsh McLennan Companies. Among other things, uh, Marsh McLennan contributes to uh, the Global Risk Report that comes out every year in the run-up to the uh, World Economic Forum, looking at climate and climate-related risks and risks of all types in business, and have a new handbook out on climate resilience. So, Lucy, let's uh, start with you. When we talk about climate resilience from a company perspective, what are we talking about? Yeah, thanks. One way that we can define climate resilience is the capacity to not only survive, but also thrive in the shift to a low carbon economy and also the direct and the indirect impacts of climate change. That's not only weather, but also looking at um, the indirect transition risk as the economy shifts and helping a company really position for success. And of course, that goes a lot into supply chains and and where companies can operate um, uh, and, and where they're looking at the, what's changing in those locations in their far-flung supply chains. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, we, you know, when we think about climate resilience and how companies can start to, you know, get their brains around this topic, we think of three broad areas. You can think of your strategies, which is looking at the convergence, especially around technologies, emerging technologies, and the convergence to a low-carbon economy. So, say, e-vehicles and the big shifts in your supply chain there. You're looking at financing, and that's how to access and leverage all the capital that is, you know, shifting the trillions and in, into the clean economy. And then finally, also risk management, looking at some of the risk management tools and processes that companies can adopt to enhance and strengthen their climate resilience today. So we break it in those three areas. Chris, let's talk about that risk management piece inside companies. Um, How much do companies uh, really associate their risk departments uh, and bring climate change into that conversation? Um, You know, Unfortunately, I, I think not enough. Um, it's, it's not always visible to us. It may well be going on at the strategic level, but I, I don't think this topic has translated to risk yet um, beyond perhaps sort of carbon footprinting and things such as that. What do you see as the biggest barrier? Well, I think that the risk, the risk function within an organization needs to have a seat at the table when they're developing strategy. And it's also, isn't it a matter of the sustainability people inside companies talking to the risk people? I, my sense is that they don't really communicate well and maybe not e- don't even know each other. You know, I don't have the visibility on that. My gut would be you're right. Um, and, and if it is going on, it's probably not visible enough. But I'm sure in some organizations it's, it's, it's probably not going on to the extent it should be. How is the insurance industry starting to think about risk, business risk, uh, in the, in the era of, of climate constraints and, and disruption in ways that we hadn't really been thinking about before? 
Well, I mean, I think that the reinsurance market has definitely been looking at this topic for a long time. Um, the primary insurance markets, not so much, I don't think. I mean, they, they have the knowledge that they can change their pricing and their risk appetite annually. So um, as the risk progresses, it, they're, they're going to move their position. So I think that's, that's one aspect. But we've just seen a major insurance company announce that they are no longer supporting thermal coal. Um, so if there are organizations out there that either generating electricity that's more than 50% of the revenues from thermal coal or, or they're mining thermal coal, then that leading insurance company is not going to support that business anymore. So that's going to create you know, issues of you know, how, how and where they access the insurance marketplace and may mean they need to take more risk. What are some of the other disruptions that you see coming if that business may not be looking at? Obviously, we, we look at uh, coastal flooding and the impact on airports or ports or, or uh, residences or businesses in that area. Are, what's sort of the next, hate to say this, next wave beyond that in terms of risk that maybe isn't yet on most companies' radar? Um, well, I mean, it's not that it's on their radar, not on their radar, but I think water's one of the obvious ones. I mean, I think um, we've got a situation where Cape Town is going to run out of water in a matter of weeks. And, you know, water has impacts the business in many ways, whether you're generating power, um, you know, where you put your facilities. So water's definitely one of those issues that's going to be a major risk, in, um, you know, factor for, for entities going forward. Mm-hmm. Lucy, one of the things that always strikes me about the Global Risk Report is is to see that uh, the connection of all the risks together and how the environmental risks and the social risks line up and, and, and how you, you know, quickly go from, from water stress to major social disruption. Uh, how, is business getting that picture now or is that still uh, opaque to them? I think a lot of factors are making these things stronger. I mean, you have things like the Global Risk Report, which put it very squarely onto people's radars. And then I think what we're also seeing is a lot more requests for disclosures, such as the Task Force on Climate, uh, the TCFD disclosures, which are asking companies to really assess how are you climate resilient. And I think that conversation is getting more and more into the strategies. The problem is a lot of these um, risks are so big and so all-encompassing, it is hard to break it down into practical decisions that you make into your business. So I think they're getting it and now it's trying to think literally how to get your arms and thinking around it within your business planning and strategies. And that's the next wave I think a lot of companies are attacking. Is the the short-term outlook, that's got to be a part of the problem, is that just companies can't look past a, a, a few quarters at most. I think the, the focus on short-termism is is always a question that is, in a, is a broader business conversation discussion that a lot of people are asking for. But you're starting to see some major institutional investors and leading organizations that are really starting to say to the boards and senior management, you need to take a long-term view of your corporation. And they're asking them a lot more. And so you see that not only within climate, but on any conversation of business value and growth. So I think that those pressures are starting to help companies take these longer-term views. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd like to pick up on that issue of sort of a big problem breaking it down. I mean, I think there are ways to do it and you can take the lens of, let's say, location. So where am I located? And, you know, a changing climate is going to create all manner of challenges. So you could be exposed to severe weather, as we've all seen last year. Um, Obviously, there's been a lot of research that shows that um, urban areas, sorry, rural areas are going to heat up quicker than urban areas. So you might be thinking about where am I located? We talked about access to water. 
Now we have the specter of wildfire. So there's actually, you know, you can just take location as a lens to say, what is my risk profile and how can I change that over time through my strategy? I imagine that there are going to be some locations that are, are just going to become uh, taken off the map, so to speak, in terms of that companies uh, are, are able to do business there. Are, are you starting to see that already? I'm not sure that we are. I mean, you could look at the real estate market for certain places like Miami. It's showing no signs of, of um, slowing down. So um, I think that there is, there is perhaps a perspective on the asset prices, the things like real estate market rather than actually on the risk. Yep. And, and again, it seems so, so far off, 30, 40, 50 years, that people are worrying about it later rather than now. Well, that's, I think, going to be the big challenge is how do we get that uh, longer-term horizon. Uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I, I, every year when the Global Risk Report comes out, um, I, I love to just sort of get the, first of all, the high-level view of, of, of all that's going on. So we're going to be talking a lot more about this. Thanks so much for being here at GreenBiz. Chris Smy is Managing Director, Global Environmental Practice Leader, and Lucy Nottingham, Director of the Global Risk Center at Marsh McLennan Companies. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Dave Renard with uh, Equinex. I'm the Senior Director of Global Sustainability and Strategic Sourcing. We're the um, global leader in interconnection and data center services. And uh, we're one of the the biggest probably internet companies uh, that people haven't heard of. We're a business to business. And so what we do matters to our customers. And especially when it comes to things like uh, environmental sustainability, renewable energy, carbon footprint, those types of things. We are in the supply chain of some of the biggest companies in the world. And if, if we don't take care of our footprint, we're not taking care of our customers. How I feel about uh, change in, 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 our, in our program from 2016 to 2017, I'm really excited. So I'd point everybody to our, um, our CSR report, Sustainability, to search for sustainability in Equinix on Google. And um, in there, you'll see some charts where we measure uh, revenue growth, energy growth, and then we, we do some numbers on carbon. And we're actually bending the curve. So it was nice to see this year, for the first time, a substantial downward trend on our carbon emissions. And we're, we're a fairly young program, so we didn't really get into the game of, of um, renewable energy and, and all of that until 2015. We made our first uh, 100% aspirational goal. And um, really exciting for me to see those charts and, the, and the, sort of the fruit of our, of our labors over the last couple years. Because some of these things, you sign a deal with a renewable energy project or something, they take a year to get the contracts done and then another year to build. And so it takes a long time to even see the energy come online. But uh, we're finally starting to see the movement in the curve. And uh, I think that's the, the thing I'm most, most proud of right now is, is, is that, uh, that movement. Hi, this is Cassandra Sweet, Senior Writer at GreenBiz, and I'm here with Marty Spitzer, who is Senior Director of Climate and Renewable Energy at the World Wildlife Fund. He's also a corporate renewable energy guru, and I'd like to get some of your wisdom in this area, Marty, about some of the best ways for companies to buy and use renewable energy. You work with a lot of companies who want to switch to renewables. What do you tell companies who are just starting down this path? Where do they? Where do you start? Yeah. Well, thanks, Cassandra. Nice to be here. Um, the thing that's great right now about if you're just getting interested in renewable energy 
is that you don't have to start from scratch anymore. We're now four or five years into this journey of corporates buying renewable energy. So there's a lot of folks that have been sort of figuring out the path. So the first thing you need to do is get part, become part of the community of people who are, are doing this, and that's the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. As a buyer, you can get together and meet regularly with people from all kinds of companies who are trying to do the very same thing, you know, either been down the road or in the same place you are now, figuring out that journey. And the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I came together maybe uh, four years ago. It's a, it's a partnership of several nonprofit groups who work together, and the goal was to address the main problem large businesses were having, which is it was very difficult to buy renewable energy. So what was the problems, what issues were they facing, and how could we try to solve them together? And so the companies uh, have been at this now four years, and we, you know, there's really two main paths to buying renewables, uh, or three, I'd say. You can do on-site, some things on-site, a lot of companies still have doing on-site solar, those sorts of things. But the big off-site opportunities are either you go and you buy, um, you become a big um, purchaser of wind or solar from a large wind or solar farm, um, and that's through these what are called power purchase agreements. Uh, those are contracts that you get involved with, or you can increasingly get renewables from your utility. And more and more utilities now are starting to offer what are called green tariffs, but a way for you to sign up for a. a renewable energy directly from your utility, which helps simplify the process. I understand. I, and I've heard the same, that, that more utilities are kind of uh, figuring out that they need to offer better customer service and, and offer their customers renewables. Some states, such as Texas, have uh, competition in the energy markets, and so uh, companies have a lot more potential, to more opportunities to go out and buy renewables on their own. But uh, it seems like it, it could be kind of a complicated process, and I wonder... Uh, what, what advice can you give about kind of how to navigate some of the, the different issues when you're looking at, at signing one of these contracts? And so initially, as I was saying a moment ago, there's a community of people who have been at this. So Rocky Mountain Institute runs the Business Renewable Center. It is for buyers, and it is made educating and learning about how to do those transactions much easier. So understanding your, what you need to do, what you need to consider, what those risks are you're willing to take, and, and just you can, uh, so you can get at that pretty quickly with them now. So you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You want to kind of use uh, best practices and, and things that work from people who have done this before. Absolutely. Uh, there's no need to reinvent the wheel today. So what are you seeing, uh, you know, coming up this year and in future years? Are you, are you expecting more companies to get interested in renewable energy? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. We're four, maybe four years into this corporate purchasing movement. Um, last year, in total, we have about 40 large Fortune 500 companies that have bought renewable energy so far, which means we, while we've made a huge amount of progress, there's still a lot more to go. We're seeing more and more new buyers getting into the marketplace now that it's becoming easier, so I'm excited about that. And, uh, and we'll expect to see maybe, I hope some folks will come and join us at our Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance Summit later this year where we'll bring everybody together again, as we've been doing each year, uh, to learn from each other because that's really what the community is all about. So do you expect to get more buyers this year? or? Um... Yeah, last year at the Reba Summit, we had uh, almost 150 renewable energy buyers mixed together with service providers, utilities, uh, and other uh, renewable energy uh, interests. 
But the main focus is, if you think of it through the lens of the buyer, what does the buyer need? And we organize this work, and the whole event is really about how to make the buyer's job a lot easier. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Marty. Oh, great to be here. Thanks, Cassandra. I'm Emilio Tenuta, Vice President of Corporate Sustainability for Ecolab, and uh, just want to share some thoughts about how, how things have changed over the course of a year. Um, from our sustainability standpoint and vantage point, we see really very little change. In fact, I feel quite optimistic about where we're going with uh, giving the company's um, purpose being focused on sustainability in terms of helping our customers across one million locations really align with their sustainability goals around natural resource use, about hygiene, you know, public health and other things. So my, my uh, impression of how things have changed over the year really hasn't changed our trajectory in terms of where we're going, which is um, really driving toward focus on clean water, abundant energy, and driving energy efficiency, um, the ability to drive programs that, that improve food safety, and uh, public health. And so I feel that uh, more and more as multinationals are growing, and especially in emerging regions where natural resource constraints exist, that they'll need more of what we do to support their goals. So for us, where our sustainability strategy is focused on the product and the commercial outcomes is a little bit different because we aren't as much focused on our enterprise, which we do a great job on, um, but it's not necessarily what our strategic leverage point as a company. Gigaton coming up on its first anniversary in April is Walmart's ambitious program to help its suppliers reduce greenhouse gas emissions by one gigaton by the year 2030. That is the equivalent of taking 211 million passenger vehicles off U.S. roads for one year. And it's on top of Walmart's own mission to cut scope one and scope two emissions by 18% in absolute terms by 2025. To manage Project Gigaton, Walmart has teamed up with non-governmental organizations, including the World Wildlife Fund. So what progress has been made in the past nine months? Joining GreenBiz 350 to offer an update are Laura Phillips, Senior Vice President for Global Sustainability with Walmart, and Sheila Benini, Senior Vice President of Private Sector Engagement with WWF. Ladies, thank you very much for joining us today. Laura, let's start with you. Can you give us a sense of how many suppliers have signed on to the initiative and what's their incentive to do so? Great. So as you mentioned, Walmart, uh, together with WWF and, and other NGO partners, launched Project Gigaton last April. So it's been about a year. And so far, we've seen great engagement from our suppliers. We have about 400 suppliers who've already signed up. And they've made various commitments, ranging from you know changing out equipment in a factory all the way to suppliers signing on to science-based targets. So we're really pleased to see the progress so far. We have suppliers signing on from all different uh, markets and countries in which we source from and across 
all of the different product categories that we carry within a Walmart store, a Sam's Club, or online. So great engagement so far, but a lot more to do. Um, in terms of incentive, you know, really suppliers are telling us thank you. Thank you for creating a platform that for us is positive, that really can shine a light on the work they're already doing, uh, and that can give them a platform to talk about even more innovation and efforts in this space. You know, we've seen at Walmart, our suppliers have seen this work is good for business. Um, you know, thinking about areas like cost reduction, surety of supply, um, marketing to customers, or unlocking innovation. It's great for business, and there's a great societal impact um, and a great story that we can tell our stakeholders. Now, Walmart chose what, what it describes as pillars, six pillars, as the focus for Project Gaetan. Why those areas? So several years back, we started a project on Scope 3 emissions uh, with Environmental Defense Fund. And we had set a goal of, of if, could we work with our suppliers to reduce 20 million metric tons in our supply chain? And at the time, it was daunting. We weren't sure how we were going to do it. But we learned over the last several years which areas of focus, which are the right programs, which are the right suppliers, how to engage suppliers on Scope 3 emissions. And we, in fact, delivered that commitment to uh, achieve the goal of about 38 uh, million metric tons. So we thought, okay, there's a path here. And in fact, the six pillars are largely built on that. So we learned the biggest area of impact in our supply chain is energy. Um, the next one is agriculture. Uh, then, you know, waste, packaging, product use and deforestation are important too. We also segmented all of our suppliers so we know across all of our suppliers we divided them into tranches, which are the ones we need to get in and we're really focused on um, you know, making sure we're having conversations with those key suppliers. So Sheila, I, I understand that WWF is leading activities related to energy, deforestation and the waste pillars. Why those areas and how, what does it mean? How are you helping the suppliers? Yeah, I guess I'd start by saying how did we help overall. Um, we worked together with Walmart to actually design and set up the strategy for Gigaton. So I think we were involved in, in you know, co-conspirators, if you will, in that design. And we're leading a few of the pillars, um, in part because the work that we've done really around getting this kind of pre-collaborative um, stakeholder platforms. And we've done that across several areas in energy. We've done things around the our Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. Um, our, we're still in a platform. But I think particularly we're one of the leaders um, in setting up the science-based target initiative where we played a key role. So, I mean, we're already engaging with a number of Walmart suppliers through these kinds of platforms that we're doing. Similarly, deforestation, we have a, um, one of our biggest areas, and we work with a lot of companies um, on, their, on their deforestation. Again, have a platform, our global um, forest trade network. And then similarly on waste, we're doing a lot of work on food waste. We've been engaging a number of, um, of players there, as well as on the, um, on the material waste and uh, work we've done both around things like Bioplastic Feeds, Biofeedstock Alliance and our Cascading Materials Vision. So in all these areas, we've worked with multiple companies and have platforms. So it just was natural for us to take a role and engage many of those same companies, but go further as well. Now, I, the word collaboration is used a lot, and I love it, and I believe in it. What does it mean, though? Like, what specifically do your teams do together? Is, is there like a, a spe specific task force? Um, how are they working together? I mean, could you give us a couple examples? Sheila, I'm going to start with you. Um, but like, what does this look like? 
Well, I mean, I think you start out in the beginning and you think, okay, how are we going to make this work? And you set in place the kind of process stuff. Like you said, you set your meetings and you set calls and all of this. But I think really what happens and, and what really works with us, um, what makes this partnership so special, is getting connection at every level. So you have to have alignment at the top. Our CEOs are aligned. But then everywhere down the line, and then you have to build those relationships and really build the trust between the partners in order to be able to, you know, get to that point where you can push each other and challenge each other. And, you know, we challenge a lot on, is this the science there? You know, are we going to be able to be rigorous enough? And they challenge us on things like, are we moving fast enough, right? Um, so I think that you you really have to take the time to build the relationship. And a lot of it is when you have real work that you're both incredibly excited about and excited about, you know, where you're going, I think it helps you, you know, you're motivated and you start building those, those relationships that you need. And Walmart is a huge organization. So again, you know, you're, you're dealing with so many different suppliers and, and partners and so forth. So how do you flex internally to be able to handle a collaboration of this nature? What, what, what goes into it on your side? You know, I would tell you, when we first were thinking about Project Gigaton and developing these ambitious goals and the program, we thought we really needed a partner who could come alongside us and help us with, you know, build out the details, the science, the approach, the, you know, how are we going to actually implement to help bring this to life? And so we were so happy to find WWF and be able to kind of work on this together. I would say we're, we're learning from each other. We listen to each other. Um, and as Sheila said, all of that is built on a foundation of trust. Um, but it is hard, and it, is, it has taken um, some time on, on each of our sides. But for our team, it's been so helpful to sit in a room and have WDF bring in, you know, the expert on food waste or the expert on, you know, who wrote the science-based targets or, you know, the forest work and be able to collaborate with us across the teams at all levels and help educate us and, and, and inform us about what we can do to really drive impact. No, I know you're you're nine months into this, not even a year. Um, but have you changed anything as a result of the collaboration so far? Has have you changed any processes, um, you know, or changed a, a, the way you think about a process as you've kind of gotten into this? I would say for Walmart, you know, we approach our work in uh, in sustainability in the supply chain with this kind of theme of continuous improvement, and we really want our suppliers to get started um, on the journey and then to make change and impact and progress throughout their journey. So we've used a tool called the Sustainability Index for many years that helps us understand environmental impact in uh, suppliers and categories, and we challenge our suppliers to participate in that and see progress. And now Project Gigaton is another way for them to really innovate and lead, um, and so we really kind of use both of those tools to help those suppliers along that journey. I would say we're learning some new things within Project Gigaton um, and new areas of impact that we can drive together with our suppliers. And so we'll be working on new programs that we can help um, suppliers uh, with new tools and resources to help their work on Project Gigaton. You use the, the term starting up, you know, getting things started. And, you know, for Sheila, I, I would imagine that some of the suppliers are, feel very challenged like, or, or overwhelmed about how they can get engaged with this. Like, how do I prioritize? Which... Which pillar do I choose? How do I do all six? How, how do you? How does WWF help with that sort of prioritization process, or with hey, here's here's where you can make an impact. 
It's a great question. I think one of the things I love about the Gigaton Project is it's not a one-size-fits-all. So it's not like everybody has to do this impact in this way. It's really by having the different pillars, it allows a supplier to be able to figure out what their impact is and where they can have the most um, you know, they can drive the most change. And so I think that's a piece of it is helping them, you know, just say what what are they comfortable with and what's their big impact. Um, but I think the other thing, too, is together um, with uh, ourselves and the other um, nonprofit partners, the other NGOs like EDF and CDP and the Sustainability Consortium, um, we have done a lot to gather resources of all shapes and sizes. So really a treasure trove of um, resources so that suppliers all along the spectrum can really get started. So whether or not they haven't done anything yet, or if they're, you know, setting a science-based target. And really, we've tried to help provide some resources so that anywhere they are, they can step into it. And that's exciting. And I also think the any the pillars itself being so broad, like deforestation, waste, etc., um, it really enables a broader impact. It's a ripple effect because you do deforestation, you're not just having an impact on carbon. Mm. You're going to have an impact on air quality and water and the communities that live there. And this is the case across all of these pillars. So I think what's super exciting for you know many of the suppliers is they're already doing some of this for them to be able to go out there, set you know an ambitious commitment, and get recognition. I think is really terrific. If you could have suppliers do one thing with Project Gigaton, what would it be? I will start with you, Sheila. Well, for me, it's about the impact. Right? That's why we're here. And a gigaton is a lot. So we'd love to see suppliers set you know, innovative, ambitious targets. And we'd love to see them go and get them and see the impact on the ground. So I'm hoping that it'll motivate you know, more of the suppliers who haven't today stepped up to set ambitious targets. And for some of those who have targets, why not make them even more ambitious? So it's really about the impact. And Laura? I would say move beyond checking the box. So we want them in the program. We want them to participate, but we want them to think about it in a new way and really embrace all that this opportunity unlocks for them, which is around innovation, you know, new innovative ways to think about cutting costs or improving resources, um, innovative solutions, perhaps using technology to really get at some of these really big challenges, um, and also opportunities for engagement with their customers. Um, we really want to see more customer engagement on the program, as well as their own associates, you know, in their own factory and fields, um, wherever they operate, how do they get their whole company involved and, and really, um, really take it up a notch beyond just um, participating? Thanks so much for being so willing to share and to, for being here at, at this community event to, uh, to tell, tell people what's going on and, and how they can participate. Thank you very much to both of you. Hi, I'm Kevin Hagen from Iron Mountain. I am. I remain optimistic and hopeful this year versus last year, although I think some of the pieces are starting to come together. We understand better the policy environment, and I think that's helpful to sort of base where we're coming from. But in fact, the whole notion of sustainability is not to be bounded by regulatory and compliance environment. It's to go way beyond and think about ways to make these concepts of environmental and social performance part of the business performance in the first place. So we don't have to have a regulatory environment to do that, although great policy helps. 
What we really need is the creativity, the innovation, and to harness the hope of our people to be able to put wonderful ideas to work in ways that are great for the business, great for our communities and people, and great for the planet. Let's wrap things up with a little snippet from a conversation I had on the main stage with Catherine Wilkinson, who's a senior writer at Project Drawdown. Project Drawdown, as you know, came out with this book last April with 80 uh, sort of key solutions for uh, drawing down carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases to actually not just uh, cap emissions, but actually reverse global warming. Uh, kind of an audacious book. and. Um, I have to say, you know, it's a lot of technical stuff, refrigerants and things like that, but she was so poetic and graceful. She's very articulate and uh, very optimistic. You know, it was one of those, um, it, they have a lot of work to do. I have to, I, I, will, I will say it. Um, the corporate buy-in has probably not been as tangible as they would like, although there seems to be a lot of startups that are loving this idea that they can create um, solutions for drawing down for reversing global warming, not just slowing it down or, or making it less, you know, less worse, but really going in and affecting change in a, in, in, in a reversal. And um, so... And doing it in a way that's profitable, that is exactly. new, new business opportunities. It's not just philanthropy or not just mitigation. Yeah, exactly. Now, she mentioned uh, the Interface is one of the, the companies that is really trying to build this into their thinking, and I love that, but I would love to also see more. Um, she said there were whispers that there, there are others in the, in the wings, um, but, but again, she, she left us with this kind of hopeful optimism about where we can go, and I, I have to say I love anyone who quotes from memory beautiful passages of poetry um, in front of a live audience. So, Well, let's go out with that. When I share this work, what I see happen in rooms like this is a kind of reignition of a sense of a sense of possibility. Um, so, you know, we've gotten so good at telling an "I have a nightmare" speech about climate change, and we have been woefully bad, I think, at articulating a vision beyond averting catastrophe. What would we actually want to get out of bed in the morning and work towards? Um, and if the end game is about action right? It's not just our head, it's also our heart that comes through our hands. And I think we have to be speaking to, to both of those things. Mary Oliver's most recent collection uh, has this wonderful poem called The World I Live In. And she, she says, um, I have refused to live locked in the orderly house of reasons and proofs. The world I live in and believe in is wider than that. And anyway, what's wrong with maybe? You wouldn't believe what once or twice I have seen. I'll just tell you this. Only if you have angels in your head will you ever possibly see one. And that's our 350 podcast for this week here in the desert in Phoenix, Arizona. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. And as always, while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We love your cards and letters. 
Green Biz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce, and let's give another shout out to the Green Biz hardworking editorial team here, Anya Hollemeiser, R.P. Siegel, Cassandra Sweet, and of course, uh, Elsa Wenzel, our managing editor, and not the least of which is you, Heather Clancy, our editorial director. We'll be back next week in Oakland, California for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.